0: Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We continue our series through the book of Acts. We're looking at verses 1 through 7 today. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. This is what many scholars and and Christians believe to be a passage that shows us the the beginning of what we now call the diaconate or the deacon ministry in local churches Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said this, it pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, help us to to see clearly the truth of your word, to see what is good and right and to see what is corrupt and needs to change. We pray that you would change us wherever necessary. And that you would continue to unite us in our mission and in our calling as believers and brothers and sisters here at Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you pay attention to religious news, Christian news, Southern Baptist news, there's some big news. We are a church that cooperates with the Southern Baptist Convention. Um. A report was released, an investigative report done by an independent third party, and this was an investigation into the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the executive committee is a group, a small group of staff, and a large group of volunteers, and they basically run the machinery that is the Southern Baptist Convention in between our annual meetings that happen each summer. Because we have checks that have to get cut, things have to be done. So the executive committee basically keeps the lights on, keeps everything running, and their job is to ultimately uh, fulfill the, the tasks and responsibilities given to them by us, the churches that meet at the convention annually. Well, there was an investigation done into the executive committee because there have been allegations that people were reporting sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches to the executive committee, and that the executive committee didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to hear it, didn't want to deal with it. In fact, would demonize the abused, the victims, accusing them of having satanic motives, just wanting to ruin the convention. Lots of accusations. So an independent investigation was launched. And we got the results back, and it's worse than some of us thought. Now, the short of it is, the executive committee is a large group, but at the upper level, there was a a smaller group that essentially controlled a lot of information and kept the rest of the executive committee in the dark. Now, this is what the independent investigation is showing, and that, yes... They did field questions from those who were abused and accusing others of of sexual immorality, and um, not sexual immorality, I'm sorry, sexual abuse. And uh, they didn't want to deal with it, they didn't want to report it, they didn't offer help or support, and they did in fact demonize and antagonize and gaslight victims. But it goes beyond that. Even one of our former SBC presidents has, has been accused of sexual abuse. So it's a big report, and the elders will be issuing a statement for you with links to the report so you can see everything that's going on. And this is a devastatingly painful expose of sin in our convention. And it has to be dealt with, and hopefully it will be thoroughly dealt with, And we already do see some good things happening. But let me be clear here. Before we suddenly jump the gun and say, well, the SBC is a mess, uh, the reason this investigation happened is because the SBC demanded it. You see, this investigation was called for by messengers. That's us. I was there. I voted for this. It didn't come from the stage. It didn't come from leaders. It came from a man who knew how to make this motion in such a way to get people to understand what the, what's at stake here. And the, from the floor, we called for an independent investigation where the executive committee would have to waive attorney-client privilege. That came from us. So, yes, this is bad news, but it's a demonstration of our churches wanting to do the right thing. And it was overwhelmingly passed by almost 15,000 people. That were there so this summer at the SBC I will be there Pastor Jimmy will be there in California participating we're going to see how this unfolds and what kind of progress we can make as a convention as we hold the executive committee uh, accountable and let me also say I know some people on the executive committee some godly people who wanted to waive attorney-client privilege who wanted to do this investigation they were all for it but there were others who clearly did not want to And they fought against it. But ultimately, we were able to prevail. And yes, this has now come out. So we want you to be in prayer for the victims as well as for our cooperative efforts as the SBC because we're always evaluating, do we want to continue partnering with the SBC? And so this raises that question again. So pray for us for wisdom, for clarity, and for God to be at work. This is important for us, right? Not just because, oh, that happened over there, but because we're connected to it. And what we see that happening in that executive committee is a betrayal of the heart of God. It's a betrayal of our calling as Christians who cooperate together, the calling to help those who need help, to advocate for those who need a voice, to extend mercy to those who are in need. And in fact, in God's providence, he has me preaching on Acts, cha- on Acts chapter 6, where I believe the diaconate is being pulled together for the first time to extend a ministry of mercy to those who are in need. Here's what we're going to see in our passage today. The diaconate, the ministry of deacons in local churches, right? The diaconate is the church's example of the ministry of mercy. It's the church's example of it. It's not the only manifestation of it, but it is the bright example of the ministry of mercy, in the local church. Here's what we're going to do. In verse 1, we're going to see that healthy churches fail, right? Healthy churches get caught up in sin. Number 2, in verses 2 through 6, we're going to see that healthy churches change. Healthy churches actually address problems and develop and improve. And number three, in verse seven, we're going to see that healthy churches persevere. That's how we're going to lay this passage out. So verse one, healthy churches fail. Look again. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the church at this point is pretty healthy, right? We've been following along throughout the book of Acts. The gospel's being preached. The people are in unity together. They're sacrificing their own property and goods whenever there's a need to take care of each other. People are being converted. They're they're experiencing persecution, but they're remaining faithful in the midst of it. And and the believers are actually called disciples. We see this in in verse 2, right? They're, they're, They're being addressed as disciples now. Like, very clearly, these are the followers of Jesus. They are a good example. The church is healthy. But a healthy church is not a perfect church. Healthy churches struggle with sin because sinners sin, and the church is filled with people like you, people like me, sinners. This is not an excuse. This does not excuse sin in the church. like, well, sinners gonna sin. Like, that's not the point. The point is is that we can expect that there will be sin and failure and and, and discouragement at times because we will get things wrong. But even in the healthiest of churches, there will be failure. And the failure here is really revolving around separation and distinction, okay? Now, look, it it, it refers to Hellenists and Hebrews here. Do you see that? Hellenists were... Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews were the Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jews. These Hellenists are Greek-speaking because they were taken out of or left the land of Israel generations ago and were raised in different cultures and contexts. So they have a different cultural background. They learn Greek. That's the language that they know. But in their later years, they've come back to Israel because they want to be close to the temple. They want to be close to the land, right? The land that God gave their people. So we've got these Greek-speaking Jews coming back, and now they don't speak Aramaic or Hebrew, so they're not really clicking with the Hebrew Jews. Plus, they gather in different synagogues. You had the Greek-speaking synagogues and you had the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking synagogues and they just tended to settle. That's not necessarily wrong. It's just the way things are. Things happen that way. Okay, so there's, there's distinction and you could even say division in some way. Not hard, but it just is. But they even had different scriptures. I mean, technically the scriptures are the same, but the Greek-speaking uh, Jews, they, the Hellenists, they had the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whereas the Hebrew Jews had the Hebrew Bible. Same scripture, different translations. So you see that they're existing in these different spheres, they're they're separated. And the problem is, is that as both Hebrew Jews and Greek speaking Jews are converted and brought into the church, the separation continued. They just naturally tended to gravitate towards their own people. And we're all sort of like that to some degree, right? We tend to gravitate towards people that are like us or think like us or are interested in the same things as us, right, so like I I gravitate towards David Cook because he likes heavy metal. Yes, yes, we have great commonality there, heavy metal. So we talk about heavy metal a lot. He talks a lot about wrestling. I, don't, I just listen because I don't know anything about wrestling. But he thought so it's interesting. But heavy metal, we're the same. So we gravitate. I don't talk to, to Kevin about heavy metal. I mean, he doesn't care. So we tend to gravitate towards people that we have similarities with. But in the church, this distinction was maintained. It was allowed to maintain. The church did not know how to navigate that particular problem. And it is a problem, one that we should be able to address. And it manifested itself in a particular problem where the most vulnerable people of the Hellenist Jews were being neglected and overlooked. You see that in verse 1, that second half? Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is a problem. This is not just, oh, well, they're just kind of vibing over here. They're just doing their own thing, and we're doing our own thing. There was a daily distribution for people in need. Here's how it worked. Widows were... At great risk in this society because they didn't have family or, uh, or or support for them, so they relied on help. Right. So if they didn't have family, they oftentimes, most generally, got it from their synagogue. Well, these are Christians. These are converts. Guess who's not welcome in the synagogues? Guess who's not going to get help from their synagogue? These converts. But, praise God, they're a part of the church, and we've already seen the church likes to pull pool their resources and help each other whenever they have it. So it turns out there's a daily distribution to meet the needs of those who are at risk in the church, and the widows are right there. Very important. But there's one group that's being neglected. It's not evenly spread across both groups, it's not haphazard. The Hellenist widows are being ignored. They're being overlooked. They're being tossed aside. There's some sin in the camp. We're not just talking about cultural differences here that are hard to navigate, which we need to. We're talking about favoritism and prejudice in the church, in a healthy church. It's not the whole church, but there's a problem in the church that needs to be addressed. There is sin, sin that is a betrayal of the heart of God, And sin that is completely at odds with the gospel itself. The good news that we preach, that we believe, that has saved us. And what is that? That God shows mercy and extends kindness to the undeserving. He gives us what we need but cannot get for ourselves. Forgiveness and life. Reconciliation to himself. We have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ because God extends it as a gift that we receive by faith. and yet in the church we see favoritism and prejudice and some are being denied or neglected why we don't we can't get into the weeds because we don't really know but it seems rather obvious they're being ignored because they're different they're not like us healthy churches fail it happens but well, what do we do How do we navigate it? Well, healthy churches, yes, they fail, but healthy churches change. That's what we see in verses two through six, healthy churches actually change. Now, before we look at those verses, I just wanna remind you, I I think it's just a reminder, I think you guys know this, that the church bears a divine responsibility to extend mercy to those in need. That shouldn't be, that should not be controversial. We bear the responsibility, a calling to extend mercy to those in need, especially those among us. It seems to me that there are some Christians in some churches that at least give off the impression that really the only thing we should be concerned with is having good doctrine that's clearly articulated. As long as we're teaching the right things, we don't really have to do the right things And that may not be the actual thought process of of Christians and churches that I have in mind, but it sometimes comes across that way. It is as if, listen, we're just going to give you the spiritual food, and that should give you all the motivation that you need to pull yourselves up from your misery and out of need or destitution into success. The church bears the responsibility, yes, of preaching the truth, teaching the truth, and making disciples, but a part of this is the demonstration, the practice of the ministry of mercy. Let me just read a few passages, just to highlight this, just a few, but get comfortable. Uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So just note this off the bat. Like we are called and given this responsibility to speak up on behalf of those who have no voice, of those who need help. It's not enough to recognize that there's a problem. We need to be vocal. And the reason we need to be vocal is because nobody else really wants to do it. The majority want to be comfortable and just deal with their own problems. But to say, oh, here's an issue that we need to address to raise your voice is to say, this problem requires attention and I bear some of the responsibility of dealing with it. This is the heart of God. uh, Psalm chapter 41. Psalm 41, verse one. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. And he is called blessed in the land. It's supposed to mark God's people a care and a concern and a consideration for those who are in need, for the oppressed, for the overlooked, for the neglected. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place this is a part of our calling, right? We're called to live peaceably with all as long as it depends on us. We oftentimes think that means minding my own business, keeping my head down and just taking care of me. To live peaceably with all means to help them experience peace when they're being robbed of it, when it's being taken from them. God's word again and again throughout scripture makes this point. I'm just looking at a few. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Right. Even even here, we're seeing it's not just be nice to each other. It's not just extend mercy to each other. It's in your hearts have compassion on one another. Micah six eight. What is good and what does the Lord require of us? But to do justice and to love mercy, not just do mercy. You gotta love it. You have to care for these other people and to walk humbly with your God. Speaking of that, look at James chapter one. Or listen, James chapter one verse twenty seven. Religion that is pure. I know some people don't like the word religion. Religion. Isn't religion a bad word? We believe in the gospel, not religion. It's, it's a relationship, not a religion. Stop it. That's lame. It's a religion. Religion is the structure, the totality of what one believes. So there's good religion and bad religion, right? The way the Puritans would talk about it is there's religion, which is Christianity, the faith. There is religion, which is true. And then there's false religion, Right, and we know that religion is a good word because it's in the Bible, right, not just because some great theologians of the past have used it. So here, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Seems to me that a lot of us tend to gravitate towards the latter one. Keeping myself unstained from the world. That's my religion. That's religion. The practical outworking of my faith, right? The, the practice of piety. So this is what it is. We think, like, oh, it's keeping myself unstained from the world. I'm going I'm to cultivate faith and I'm going to repent of my sins and I'm just going to take care of me. It's me and Jesus all the way. But that's only a part of it. In fact, the point seems to be that part of keeping ourselves unstained from the world is to take care of and visit those who are in distress, the orphans and the widows. It means we actually care and give ourselves to serving others when the need presents itself. This is the heart of God and a part of our calling as Christians and as churches. A ministry of mercy. Now, healthy churches change knowing all of this seeing the problem in their midst they begin to address the issue look at verse 2 the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables now what's happening here is they're wrestling with how do we deal with this problem There's a real problem, they feel it, they're burdened about it, but they know that their particular calling in the church is to devote so much of their time to the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching and the ministry of prayer, that if they were to tackle this problem themselves directly, they would have to neglect that. And so they're saying like, okay, we can't do both, so we have to figure out how we're going to deal with the problem while maintaining our own callings and responsibilities in the office of elder and so this issue of capacity is is weighing on them. And let me be really clear. They are not implying that serving tables is beneath them. That's not the point. They're not being like, man, we're, we're, we're supposed to be chilling in our fancy suits and cars and uh, we ain't got time to get out of the AC to go take care of people that are hungry. Uh, that's not the point. The, the point is, is... As much as we want to help, we can't because we have other responsibilities that are taking up our time. So they begin to put together a team of people who become the prototype of the diaconate in a church, deacons. And we see this in verses three and four. Therefore, brothers, the apostles say to the church, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here we have these proto deacons, right? These are seven men that are that are going to be chosen from among all the disciples to address this particular problem. What are the qualifications? Good reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. Good reputation means that they have to be a person of good character, recognizable character walking down the street, people don't go, whoo, that guy's a jerk, right? Everybody hates that guy. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes, the guy that, you know, that, that never tips. Like, whatever. Like, it's a person that has good character, a person whose godliness is evident to others, right? So good reputation, full of the Spirit. This does not mean speaking in tongues. We've already addressed this. In the book of Acts, there are times when people are filled with the Spirit, and they did speak in tongues, but to be filled with the Spirit really was generally... Uh, A demonstration of the influence of the Spirit in someone's life to empower them to fulfill God's calling in their life and bear fruit. And so to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit, influenced by the Spirit. Whatever fills you, dominates you, characterizes you, and controls you. So what we want are spiritually-minded, Spirit-filled people who have a good reputation, who are also full of wisdom. Wisdom. Not everybody gets the same amount of wisdom. Some of you are wise. Some of us aren't so wise, naturally. Some of us need to ask God for a lot more wisdom. Some of you seem pretty topped off in the wisdom category. Good for you. Praise God. Though the good news is God says if you lack wisdom and you ask for it, sincerely, God will give you what you need. So that's the good news. But deacons, these people that are going to solve this problem, needed to have wisdom because wisdom is what? It's the practical application of the truth of God's word to specific situations. They have to be able to look at issues, to look at problems, diagnose what really is going wrong and how to best solve that problem. In this way, deacons serve the church and extend mercy to people, to situations that there might be health. Now these first deacons were all men. But as the diaconate develops over time and when it is officially sort of instituted and we see it in the, in the pastoral epistles, it is including both men and women. It's not limited to just men. Now, here at Redeemer, we believe that the office of elder slash pastor, right? Elder, pastor, bishop, all the same thing, just different words, talking about the same office. We do believe that the office of elder is limited not to men, but to qualified called men in local churches it's an important distinction um, but the diaconate appears to be made up of both men and women deacons are not pastors in the church they are servants to the church of the church they represent the church uh, they are hands-on ministers of mercy and we see this for example I mean the the Maybe the most famous deacon is Phoebe in Acts chapter 16, verse one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancreia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. A couple of things to note about this passage. Number one, it says that Phoebe is a servant of the church. That word is the word for deacon. Here it is translated, translations have to make choices, right? They have to make choices, like how do we translate this? And deacon would have been the, the, the literal translation. Uh, but then we servant because people debate whether or not Phoebe was a real deacon or just some kind of a servant. But historically we do recognize that she was a deacon. She's even called a patron, which means she's a financial backer and a supporter of churches and ministries. She is a ministry, a minister of mercy in the church and she was highly regarded and people were meant to help her in her ministry but we can even just look at 1st Timothy chapter 3. Timothy 3 verses 8 through 13 is where we find the qualifications for deacons. Now I'm going to be brief here but I want you to pay attention because there is controversy and disagreement over this but I'm right so you can trust me. It says, deacons likewise, that we just finished the the qualifications for elders before this, right? Deacons likewise must not be, I'm sorry, they must be. They must be dignified. They must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Stop there. Here we have these general qualifications for deacons. And the qualifications for deacons and pastors are largely the same. There are some important differences, namely, you must be able to teach and preach as an elder. You don't have to be able to do that as a deacon because with the elders comes this this authority of of, of teaching and and leading the church in that way. Deacons oftentimes can. We have some brilliant deacons here at Redeemer, but it's not a requirement. But then it says this, in verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. We're going to stop there because that is not what it says in the Greek. I've been doing this for 15 years at Redeemer. I've been preaching since 94. I very rarely pick apart our English translations because I believe we can trust them, we can read them and benefit from them. I want you to be able to read your Bibles and trust it and believe it. You can. But every once in a while translators offer up an interpretation more than a translation of the word. And there is a problem here. First of all, in verse 11, it's translated in the ESV, their wives likewise must be dignified. This is a horrible translation because, number one, that possessor there, it's not in the Greek at all. It doesn't exist. They added that. Now, they added it because they think it should be translated wives. But the Greek word is not the word for Wife. You could translate it as wife, but it's the common word for woman. That's what the word is. This should be deacons, should be blah, blah, blah. Here's the qualifications. Then you get to verse 11, then it should say, women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. There's no reason to interpret this. There is no reason to interpret this as the wives of elders. There's no possessor there, there. And it's the common word for women, Plus, it doesn't say anything in the paragraph before this for elders regarding their wives. It would be a very strange thing. We don't need to mention anything about the wives of elders, but when it comes to the deacons, they have to have wives that are on the same page as them. Now, it should be a given that husbands and wives are on the same page and on the same team and working in the same direction, but the qualifications for deacons even in the qualifications themselves, it does seem to establish that we have men and women functioning in this role. Now, in Acts, we have the prototype. Seven men are selected. Give them to this task. How does it happen? It happens through what we like to call congregationalism. Right? Congregationalism is a good thing. I like it. Congregationalism means that while we do have elders who lead and bear the responsibility and have authority, blah, 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 ultimately, though, the congregation is the final or the last authority because the congregation can say no to the elders. The elders are held accountable by the congregation. The elders in a congregational church don't just get to decide what's going to happen in back rooms and the congregation has to go along with it. The congregation has the responsibility of essentially voting or agreeing or affirming certain things. And biblically, we see it as they vote on leadership. Who's going to occupy the offices of elder and deacon? We see that happening here. The apostles are like, all right, who are the seven? They're like, these are the seven. And so then the elders or the apostles appoint them to the task. So we we vote on on leadership, elders and deacons. We vote on membership, who's joining the church, who's going out of the church. And we vote on budget which even that's not biblically necessary, but we like it because we, it's, it's God's money that we're all pooling together and we like everybody to know what's going on and be on the same page. Congregationalism. Again, this is why the Southern Baptist Convention is still relatively healthy because we, the messengers, were able to say, hey, we're hearing some really weird things that we're not happy about. We want an investigation. We want an independent investigation. And you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna waive attorney-client privilege. And then all these old cats are clutching their pearls. Oh no, we can't do that. We don't want to waive attorney client privilege. We're gonna what if we get sued? What if we get in trouble? What if it hurts the convention? Then so be it. Because we need to know what's happening. That's congregationalism. And it is what we see in scripture: elders leading, but the congregation coming alongside, they work together, and ultimately the congregation bears that responsibility of establishing leaders. So the congregation responds, we see this in verses five and six, the disciples approve, and these men are are set before the apostles and they're commissioned to this task. So what's happened so far? Sin has been discovered, it's been exposed, and now it is being actively dealt with. The church is changing. That happens if you're healthy. The deacons are instrumental in this. We got great deacons at Redeemer. Do you know who they are? Some of you do. Not a lot because, you know what? I would say it is in part because they're humble and they really don't like being singled out. Buckle up because you're about to be singled out. But it's also because we have not done a good job as elders highlighting these servants in the church. Scott Kalis is a deacon. Say, what up, Scott? Look at that guy. Looks like Spurgeon. <laughs> Spurgeon. Yeah. You, got, you got to love it. We got Deb and Greg Gabriels. The, they are deacons. They served together. They're, they were here at uh, first service. Dave Lewis in the back. Grand Poobah of all things audio, worship, arts, and all of that stuff. Dan Salufis—he's not here today. His family is is gone on vacation in Wisconsin. Who knows what they're doing? They're doing something, uh, doing something fun. Uh, Deanne Willie—I don't know Did you you're here, Deanne? I saw, I saw Jeff. She's probably serving with um, uh, with the kids. But we've got with um, the Portokalises, Stephen, Anya. Right? And, and, and all of these people are people that are qualified and, and, and called, but they're also addressing specific needs within the body as we see them. We need deacons in the church because deacons demonstrate the ministry of mercy to us all. They're not the only ones with the responsibility to exercise mercy and to help but they are our example. They encourage us, they inspire us, and we're grateful for you. Scott works in prison ministry. First time I went with Scott, to, is, is, the only time, like, we went the one time, I went with you the one time. We went to Scott's prison ministry, where he's discipling. And I had never seen Scott in action, we just hang out, family, he's my brother-in-law, right? And I was like, well, we'll see how this goes, because I'm always skeptical, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, you know, I don't know, we'll see. And bro, so blown away by how God uses you with those men. You connect with them, extending mercy to these are the forgotten men. They don't deserve a chance, they're incarcerated. They let them rot, right? Not Scott. He's like, no, my heart is burdened for them, and I want to extend kindness to them. And not because you served time, you didn't. Our deacons are good examples of Christianity in action. Churches need them. Healthy churches change. Our convention has been changing over the years. There was corruption when we started in 1845. We've changed over time. Many good things are happening, but there is evil that needs to be addressed. So, Churches that are healthy can fail. Churches that are healthy do change and ultimately healthy churches continue to persevere. Look at verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So let me be really simple and clear here. Healthy churches will fail, they will change, but they always Persevere, they continue. It doesn't mean that they're always big, it doesn't mean that they're always uh, uh, something that the whole city notices because they're such a powerful dynamic in the community. But it means that as they are faithful to God, the word of God, their testimony continues. And as we see, the word of God spreads. People share the gospel, and they have more opportunities. And then people are converted and the church grows. Maybe it grows slowly. Maybe its growth is modest. Or maybe its growth is explosive. But the church grows as we are faithful to be disciples who live out these ministries of mercy. It's not only preaching the gospel. Nobody's going to trust in Christ simply because of a demonstration of mercy. But the demonstration of mercy is an endorsement to the gospel that we preach. It is the gospel that saves. So the diaconate is the church's example of the ministry of mercy, showing that our God is a compassionate God. He cares. He loves. He is interested in us. And when we are afflicted, whether it's self-induced or not, He extends kindness and mercy and compassion. He wants to help us even at our lowest, even when we do it to ourselves. He doesn't doesn't say, Oh rot. You deserve it, you dummy. He does the opposite of what the world would expect, and we're called to follow. God is a God of compassion. He extends mercy to undeserving sinners that actually lift us up so that we are considered holy and blameless before him. We are justified before God by his grace meaning we're damned, we're unworthy, we should go straight to hell, and yet God says, what I'm gonna do, you don't deserve it, you don't have to do a thing. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to declare you to be righteous. I'm gonna lift you up and seat you with Jesus, my son, in the heavenly places. You are going to be my child now and forever. That is mercy. Deacons, we're thankful for you, for your modeling of mercy In service, but this is something that we are all called to do. So let me just encourage you. Open your eyes. I'm encouraged because I see mercy happening so much in our church. I see it in our small groups, community groups, I I see it through the diaconate. I see it happening all the time. You, You so many of you have big hearts for others, and that's because you have a heart for God, and that's because God changed your life. Wonderful. But we all need to grow in this. So open up your eyes so that you can actually see what's happening. Pay attention to the people around you and have compassion on them when they are in need. When you see somebody struggling, hurting, being forgotten or forsaken, when you see somebody who can't help themselves, when you see somebody in need, then have compassion in your heart and extend your hand to help them and speak up for them. They oftentimes won't speak up for themselves. Sometimes it's shame. Sometimes it's pride. It could be a million different reasons. But we're supposed to have a voice that speaks for those who are in need. Just as God has raised the horn of salvation, scripture says, calling everyone who is in need of forgiveness and life, he says, come, you can have it for free. It costs Jesus everything It costs us nothing. We receive his mercy by faith alone. And through that, we are changed. And then we become, all of us, ministers of mercy for the sake of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a day of worship. A day when we can gather together and rejoice in the good news of Jesus and be challenged by the calling on our lives to live like Jesus, who healed the sick, who fed the hungry, who showed compassion to the outcasts and the the disregarded and the despised. We pray, Lord, that we would experience grace upon grace, that we might all be ministers of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.